It's great to have you guys here. Uh, because my wife is uh, any minute now landing in Quito, Ecuador with the crew uh, that left this morning, 17 of us on a, on a jet plane, uh, because she's gone tonight, I thought it would be poignant and, uh, and um, very um, interesting to open with a little bit of a monologue on marriage, if I could. We're going to cut this piece out of the recording and um, add a different piece later, but I, I've been married for nine years, and uh, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I, I, I am obsessed with my wife in a very healthy way, I think. Um, uh, she's an incredible woman. And uh, w- one of the best parts that I love about marriage, and particularly marriage uh, to my wife, is that we get to, we get to uh, journey through these awesome experiences together. And, and, uh, like, and I'm not talking about big stuff, um, like uh, when we uh, got married or... Uh, when we had kids and we were in the room together, awesome moment, or when we moved into our first home. I'm like talking about the times where, where like you have this major decision about where your life is going and the opportunity to get to like talk through that with someone else. Like where, where we're, we're talking, we're dialoguing, and we're crying, and we're praying, and we're holding each other, and sometimes our voices raise a notch but it's all out of love, you know, but, but like getting to wrestle through that together. Um, what, what I love is a couple weeks ago, um, Heidi's grandfather passed away. And I cherish the moments when I just get to like be her husband and just like hold her. She's, she's never lost a, a family member. And so just getting to hold her and it, it's just something I really, really cherish. It's, it's as if like we're just, we're like this team, you know. And I know many of you who are married, like you would say the same thing. Like you feel, you feel like by definition that you're together in this, this team network. Uh, for us, we're just like minus the, the same colored jersey or something, right? And like do any of you married couples actually have like jerseys that you, like with your last name on it? Don't a- ever admit that if you do. <laughs> John Locke, you do? Uh, Trevor's pointing at you. No, you don't. Okay. A team is a powerful thing. And I think if you were to examine for a moment how much of your life is spent with other people pursuing a common goal, I think you would be overwhelmed by the amount of time that we spend doing team stuff. I'm talking about uh, third grade kickball on the playground. I'm talking about the seventh grade project, the science project. I'm talking about all of the athletic team sports that many of you guys have played. I'm talking about the task force at work. I'm talking about the subcommittee, the subcommittee that that one church 10 years ago put you in charge of something, right? Like, like all of our life, it seems like we're working with people towards a common goal. And I would say that all of you would say that there was this one team in particular that you remember because of how victorious you were. You were like the 96 Chicago Bulls. Can I get a holler? You know what I'm saying? You had a, you had a, I know, I know, I know we'd be excited right here. Um, you, you got a Mike, you got an MJ, right? Any, Michael Jordan, right? I'm not going to do this, by the way, the second service, because they'll be like, who's the Chicago Bulls? I'm not sure, right? But you got an MJ, and you got a Scottie Pippen, and you got a Dennis, I mean, just an awesome team, right? Like, phenomenal. They work together. I would imagine some of you, whether at work or whether in your individual time, um, that you've been a part of a team that's like that. Like everything just seems to go well. You, you divide and conquer. Uh, you get championship brings at the end. Like you've been a part of some of those teams. Then I would say you've probably been on a team that, that didn't go, like Bad News Bears, right? Like you, that, that, didn't, that didn't go so well for me. It was my uh, eighth grade science project. Three of us were entrusted to dissect a cat. 
uh, the cat got decapitated on accident, and that turned out to be a D minus. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, my junior year of high school, my basketball team that I played on went six and twenty-two. That's not awesome. That's pretty miserable, actually, and somewhat disheartening. Like you've been on the one side where you're incredibly encouraged, and you've been on the other side where it's like, I don't think this team is working at all. If I were to ask you, what was the component? of each of those teams that made it significant or made it successful or made it fail. I would imagine that each of you would say it was it was the chemistry, like something about working together. And sometimes you can have awesome chemistry and still lose. Right. Fair enough. But most times, like when there's something happening, this innate sense of teamwork, whether it's in a marriage or at work or at school or wherever it is, when something happens with those people, A great teammate is someone who makes everyone else better. And you've been on teams before where it just seemed like all of the pieces fit together because you all made each other better. Now here's what's so interesting. Is we talk in terms of teams often in terms and ideas about our culture. The interesting thing to note is over and over and over this concept keeps coming up in Scripture. And so for the team, uh, for for those of you that enjoy talking about teams and athletics and togetherness, tonight is your scripture, all right? I invite you guys to open uh, to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm super excited about this text tonight. It's uber practical, extremely helpful, and I believe very poignant for where we're at. You'll remember last week when we were digging into Hebrews chapter 10, the writer comes to this point where what he says after 10 chapters of teaching on the power of Christ, he says, okay, like, all this teaching about Jesus is amazing, but listen, like, it gets somewhere. Like, the teaching and the truth about Christ, it will change us. It has to change us. It has to lead to action. And so I want to read the last two verses of where we ended last week, verse 22 and verse 23. These two first let us, and then we'll read 24 and 25. That's right, tonight, only two verses. Let us, verse 22, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Ten chapters worth of if this is true about Christ, then let's go. Let's draw near to God in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And our verses for tonight, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day capitalized, drawing near. So let's start here in verse 24 and we'll get going. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, there are some passages that you read that you instantly are drawn into the history and the, and the understanding and the context. Then there's other verses that you just want to get practical right now, and this is one of those. Like, you, you read this, and you're like, yes, I've been waiting for a verse where I didn't have to know, like, who the Jews were and what the Old Testament was. And, like, I, like, like Joel Olstein could have written this. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is, like, this is something that could have, like, Oprah could have said this, this kind of phrase right here. Like, this is, it's uber practical, Right? But listen, it's not taken out of context. It's placed in a context. And the context is this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
This is written to a Jewish audience, listen, who all their life, they've grown up believing that their nationality is the thing that unites them. You're a Jew, I'm a Jew, so guess what? Because of that, we are together. We're in the same culture. Because we have the same nationality or upbringing, then our faith is, listen to this, it's inherited. Faith in God and Judaism, they met hand in hand. I'm not talking all the time genuine. But it was a cultural thing. It was a natural thing. It was a thing that you just inherited. So think about a Jew looking and hearing this verse. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. What the writer is saying is that there's something else now that's connecting us to one another. Something changes and something did change. All of the, Judea, all the Judaism and all the Old Testament is culminated in Jesus who says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And because of his death and resurrection, he leaves and he says, when I go, I'm going to send someone else, the Holy Spirit. And so when those who come to faith in me believe and we begin relationship, I bless them with the Holy Spirit and then instantly listen. Anyone who has the Holy Spirit, Jew or Gentile, is now together as what the scripture calls what? The body of Christ. So imagine how difficult this would be as a Jew to see and think about. Let us stir one another. Well, who are we talking about? Like, if we're to stir one another up, like, all I know is family, all I know is tradition. But this is something so much more. Now, we have the context, so it's not just uber practical, but let's wrestle with a couple words. First, consider. Uh, the Greek here means uh, consider. I, I, like, that's what it means. So, it, I, I, like, I, you were hanging there, like, for a cliffhanger of some, you know, some crazy definition. That's what it means, which I appreciate, because what the writer is saying is, let us think on, let us dwell on, let us imagine what it would look like to stir up one another in love and good works. Now, uh, the next word that you should want to know the definition is what? Come on. Stir up, right? What does stir up mean? It means to incite. It means to provoke in the Greek. It means to cause one another this, this angst where we just want to go for it. That's what stir up means. So, as I took the writer's advice and as I began considering what it looked like to stir up one another in love and good works, I first thought of all of you, how you have stirred me up, how you have provoked me, how you have caused me to follow Christ more effectively. But then like at some point in all of that and looking at one another, it gets a little bit loosey-goosey because we fail so much. So as for me and my house, the only place to look is the person of Christ. He, in his perfect example, showed us exactly what it, was look, what it looked like to stir up others in love and good works. Are you with me? Now, I know that there's many things that he did to do that. I just want to look at four tonight. Four things that Jesus did in his example to stir up others around him in love and good works. We together? So the first is this. He stirred one another up and stirred others up to love and good works by the people he pursued. Now, this is interesting. I was really curious about this. Who did Jesus pursue? So here's what I did. Uh, when I get curious, I'm like George. I mean, I just, I'm just, I just go after it. Like I have to, I, once I get this, this thought in my mind, so here's what I did. 
I went through the entire gospel of Luke, entire gospel, literally word for word. And I jotted down every single conversation that Jesus has in the whole gospel so that we could answer who he pursues. Here's uh, what I came up with. Okay. Now, um, 41 people or groups of people that Jesus pursues in the gospel of Luke. 41. Now, uh, one of your first questions should be, who does he pursue the most in conversation? Any, any guesses? You guys want to throw some out there? The disciples is number one, 22 times by mention, Jesus pursues the disciples. Number two, any guesses? The Pharisees and the scribes, 17, and the crowds, 15. That's by name, by definition. Number four, very interesting. Number four, demon-possessed individuals. So we go disciples, Pharisees, scribes, then we go the crowd, and then Jesus pursues fourth out of 41, those who are demon-possessed. But the question still remains, in his pursuit of all of these people, what can we learn about how he stirred others up? Next slide. I want you to pay particular attention to the highlighted in neon green. Now, every single one of these Jesus would have caught major contention for even coming in contact with these folks, let alone conversating with them. The woman who had been bleeding 12 years, she was unclean. The demon-possessed would have instantly in Jewish culture made him unclean. The thief on the cross, a sinful woman. Lepers. If you even came in proximity to a leper, it was instantly seen as a somewhat blasphemous. The, the, tax collectors, the tax collectors were hated in Jewish culture. And those of you guys that know the word, as Jesus pursues these people, guess what starts happening? People are saying things like, why are you hanging with them? Like, th you shouldn't be doing this. This, this but all the while, the disciples are watching Jesus pursue those who no one else is pursuing. He's hanging with the widow. He's talking with the tax collectors. He's healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. He is pursuing the unpursuable. And the disciples, guess what? All the while, three years worth, they're being stirred up. This is what it looks like to pursue. This is what it looks like to seek after people who no one else will seek after. And so I step back from this and I say the thing that Jesus did in pursuing people is he showed his disciples what it was to love. And as you step back and you look at this list, and you even think of the Roman centurion, uh, the Romans inhabited Israel, okay? Like eventually it was part of the Roman Empire that takes the temple down. Like this, the Romans and the Jews, by nature, don't get along. Yet Jesus is there pursuing them in conversation. So he stirred up people in love and good works, especially the disciples, by that. Number two, he stirred them up by not fearing man. Now, I, I honestly get stirred up just by reading that sentence. Like, I'm already fired up right now. You know what I'm saying? What I see in the Christ is this no fear the entire time of man, but a deep fear of God. I want to show you what I mean here. The next slide in the text. Now, Mark chapter 14, I want you to see this text, and this will help provide some context for us. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance as at the end of Jesus' life right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Pretty little picture there. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. 
For many bore a false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So here's the scene. Jesus is there. They can't find a way to kill him. That's what they want to do. So if you're Jesus, and if you're human, and if you have fear of man, you're really excited about this. They have found no reason to kill me. This is good. I'm going to get off scot-free. Verse 57, and some stood and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Next slide. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They can't get it together. And here we go. And the high priest stood up in the middle and asked Jesus. So all this false testimony, Jesus is going to get to go scot-free. But now the high priest, the high priest, we've been studying the high priest so much, stands up and asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? All Jesus had to do was close his mouth. And he would have been let go. Of course, the false accusations would have continued. But my friends, he doesn't fear man. He fears God. And because he fears God and is obedient, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So let's just go ahead and make this observation. He could have just said, I am. But then he threw on like a whole thing on top. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to be seated at the right hand in power, right? Well, look what happens. This doesn't go over well. And the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witnesses do we need? All the witnesses were false. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Listen. All of the ministry of Jesus on this earth is fearing God, not man. And so his followers are consistently and constantly being stirred in love and good works by watching him fear God more than man. He doesn't fear man and then in them something is happening. Because Christ did this, then maybe I can too. Next slide. The third way that Jesus stirs up others in love and good works is by his genuine compassion. I want to share one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels with you guys in this text to see this genuine compassion. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples had a great cr- uh, and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Those of you that have been here for a while, you know I love this story. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, see, there's no pursuit of this funeral procession of the Christ. Christ just sees it. He's just watching it go by. And the scripture said he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. He pursues her, seeks her out. The disciples are watching all of this. Again, to touch a dead body in Jewish culture, anyone? Unclean. This is not good. Then he came up and touched the buyer. And, the, and the, uh, the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Next slide. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. He stirs up his disciples to love and good works by his genuine compassion. He sees suffering, he sees hurt, and because of that, he goes after it. 
touches, heals, raises from the dead for the widow. And all these disciples just get to sit back and gaze and watch their hearts envelop with action. Next slide. The fourth thing that he does is he stirs up action, love, good works by his ability to speak the hard truth. Again, this, these four aren't exhaustive, but I think they're four that are most pertinent for us. I want to show you two examples. The first is the rich young ruler, Matthew 19. Behold, a man came up saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep these commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear a false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Next slide. And the young man said to him, all of these I have kept, what do I still lack? Now, if you're Jesus and you're not willing to speak the hard truth, you just kind of give a high five at this point. And this is what the majority of Christianity is. The it's okay high five. We're all good. Everything will be cool. Jesus takes it one step further. What, do, what still do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. In another place in scripture, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. That doesn't sound too easy. That doesn't sound like Jesus is holding back the truth. No, he's constantly in love, sharing the hard truth, including his disciples. Next slide. One of my favorite interactions here with Peter. From that time on, Matthew 16, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and he uh, began to rebuke him. It's probably not a good idea rebuking the Christ saying for be it far, uh, uh, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Uh, suffering is what he's talking about. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, if you're going to go light on truth, this isn't your phrase. Like you're not, you know, if you're going to. Uh, kind of tiptoe around the truth. You're not going to come out with, get behind me, Satan. He's going to say something, Jesus would, of Peter, like, you know what? Like, that's just not a good idea. Like, I have to suffer. Get behind me, Satan, he says, right? You are a hindrance to me. This is one of his disciples, right? The guy that Jesus said, I'm going to build a church on you, the rock. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Next slide. So here's the four things that we're talking about right now that Jesus stirred others up in love and good works. Now on a team, one of the blessings of a great team is that some days like someone on that team will have a bad, uh, will have a bad day, a bad game, and that others will kind of pick them up. But the thought is, is that like that will kind of adjust, like in my marriage. Some days I come home from work and I'm like, guns a-blazing, feel really good. We're going to fully invest in our children. Like, I'm not tired. We're going to eight parks tonight. We're going to have six picnics with all the ducks. Like, this is going to be phenomenal, right? And some of those nights when I do that, Heidi's had a long day. And so it's great because I'm kind of picking up some of the slack, per se, of our team. And other days, I'll come home. I can't feed the ducks today. I'm just struggling to get excited. But because of Heidi's energy, all of a sudden, she'll incite me. And pretty soon, we're going for it. The question from these four for you is, are you stirring others up in the body of Christ? Or are you sitting selfishly 
as the needy person who, as you examine all four of these, you're not doing a one of these. Let's uh, go uh, through the four if we could. Remember the, uh, the seventh, eighth grade lunchroom? You guys remember that scene? Pretty beautiful scene. And that was the first time you learned what goulash was. This like conglomeration of meat and all kinds of random things, right? I personally loved my 7th and 8th grade uh, lunchroom because it was before they outlawed the milkshake in the lunchroom, right, before they thought that was unhealthy. Any milkshake fans here? Like, we had milkshakes every single day. My freshman year, they said, that's making everyone fat. Now we go to, you know, water and milk and these things. Hated that. Anyway, the lunchroom for me, I still remember this scene. A buddy of mine I was sitting next to, and I would imagine all of you guys had a similar scene at, at some point in your life. Buddy of mine, we're sitting together. We sat together every single day. And that first time that he stood up and he, he like started walking away from the table and we're all like, dude, what do you, like he didn't say anything. He just stood up and started walking. And he goes to this table where just this one lone dude always sat. And he, he took his tray and this, this guy wasn't even a, a believer. He took his tray and he just sat down by this guy. And I, I remember on my insides, like just watching this scene being stirred up, like thinking to myself, like, it, like this, I want this. Like I want to do something so much that would like pursue people that are so unlovable. And there's something just about watching others do that that should incite the rest of us. That's what we in the body of Christ are called to be doing, stirring one another up in love and good works. How about not fearing man? And do you remember the first time that Someone that you were with, or maybe it was you, took a stand even though it was going to cause much persecution. Peer pressure was coming down. Maybe it was a setting around alcohol or all kinds of other things. And someone stood up in that group and said, no, not me. And there was something as you watched them or something as you experienced it yourself that was so freeing because they did not care. They didn't care about anything. They didn't care about what anyone thought. They didn't care about what you thought. All they cared about was the fact that I'm going to take this stand because it's important to me. And if connected to Christ, because of Christ. Do you remember in that moment being incited, maybe still fearful to do it yourself, but inside being like, I want to be that. I want to be so strong that I can take a stand. Is that what you're doing? Are you causing the others in the body of Christ to be provoked to take their stand too? Or are you sitting on the sidelines, fearful, worried, bogged down? Let's look at number three, by his genuine compassion. Many of you guys have heard this story before. My mother, one of the greatest things my mother ever did. We had this next door neighbor. Uh, her name was Shauna when I was really, really young. Was in an abusive home, abusive family amazing girl my mom just my mom just loved on this girl took her in oftentimes she would be needing food took her in her family would be going chaos my mom took her in she was always at her house Shauna actually taught me how to ride a bike I know that seems like it would be crazy and it was for her it took like many years right but th she did and then one day through all that pursuit Shauna later in her life she was uh, 16 years old was in a car with a, a bunch of folks who were drinking uh, just a half a mile behind her house. And they hit a tree and she flew out and she was killed. But I remember watching my mom pursue this girl in genuine compassion. And I remember as a young boy, and still that affects me, 
is I remember how, how loving and gracious and kind my mother was. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, I want to be like that for people. I want to pursue in genuine compassion out of a heart of love. And even as a young boy, stirred up by his ability to speak the hard truth. Listen, I don't understand. I don't understand why this is one of our greatest difficulties in the entire Christian church. We would rather, we would rather go years and years and years as cowards, not dealing with issues, than have one one-hour hard conversation. Some of you are three years behind having a difficult conversation with someone, speaking some hard truth in love, because you would rather sit in the corner than have to look face-to-face and deal with it biblically. But isn't it so encouraging when you finally see someone do it and then you see God bless it and all of a sudden you're like, maybe it's not so hard. Like maybe actually it's biblical for a reason because the church needs to learn how to live and work and be together. And so I'm just asking you, are you stirring one another on by how many hard conversations you're having and how you're dealing with difficult and difficult truth? Listen, what starts happening is the beautiful picture of the church starts being birthed because of this. Now all of a sudden we become people. Some days we're struggling. But in those days we're able to look at others and especially look at the example of Christ and instantly be stirred again to love and good works. But the problem is I fear that many of you look at these four and you say, actually I'm struggling with all of these. So if you're not stirring up, if you're not provoking your brothers and sisters in Christ in these things, then what are you doing? Then what has the church become? This place where we look to a few people to drag the rest of us behind? Or this place where we long We long for our brothers and sisters to grow in Christ so much so that we understand that our sin doesn't just affect us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Your sin alone in your room does not just affect you. Your sin in your marriage, it doesn't just affect you. Your sin with this person over here, your sin with your roommate. These things affect the body of Christ because we're in this together. Listen to this. I I preached this camp several years ago. I know many of you guys will get a kick out of this, but it was amazing. Preached this camp several years ago. Last day of the camp, all right? I took everyone out to this open field, right? And I wish I had blue face paint, but I didn't, okay? And I lined everyone up, open field. There was like 350 of us in like one huge line on one side of the field. I'm like, it was amazing. I wish I had a camera, right? And what I had everyone do is we just stood there, and I had them look to the left and to the right. And I remember personally, like, I was just weeping, just watching this. Everyone's, like, looking to the left and to the right. And then I went out in front of this line, and I talked about the unity of the body of Christ, how we're in this together, how one of the greatest things you can ever feel that will pull you apart and away is to think that you're in this alone. And then beautiful picture, 
all of us in a line, we just started walking across this field. Uh, scriptures came to mind like stay in step with the Spirit. Journey after Christ. We're just like walking across the field. And then I had everyone just take a second and just sit in the picture of the church pursuing Christ together. And yes, when one struggles, we pick them up. But I had one person stay behind and the rest move. And I was like, what, what about that one person that's in the body of Christ that's just constantly needing, I need, I need, I need this, I need that. They're constantly pointing the finger in. And all of us are looking back saying, come on, like we're trying to incite you, we're trying to provoke you. The problem is in the church is not just one. The majority of the Christian church are a bunch of people who have become so self-indulgent that the whole church concept in their minds is about the church bringing them along and not stirring up one another. We're in this together to stir each other up as we pursue Christ. So the question is, are you stirring your brothers and sisters up, my friend? Or if you become this self-indulgent, needy Christian waiting for someone to come and adhere to your needs, right? Let's move on to verse 25. Verse 25 says this, We're to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, another awesome verse of high practicality. You guys love these kind of verses. Let's just, let's pull it out. Let's not understand the context. Okay, let's not neglect a meeting together. Like, that's already a bumper sticker, right? Like, this is good. This is great. Like, this is encouraging. But try to understand the context for a moment. What could possibly be going on in these readers' minds that he would say, don't neglect meeting together? Persecution? As this church, and we see in Hebrews 12, 4, that no one had lost their life yet, no blood had been shed. But this church was definitely under persecution. It was mid or early 60s, rather. The temple hasn't been destroyed in Jerusalem yet in 70 AD. And if persecution is coming together, it's probable that these young Christians, new in the faith, struggling to go back to the old, are stopping meeting together because they're just afraid of persecution. And so he's like, no, 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 don't neglect meeting together. And I think there's probably another reason in tradition and what we already talked about. Did, do you guys ever, have you guys ever had family get-togethers? Where you feel like you just got together because it was tradition, but no one wanted to be there at all. Like, have you ever felt that way? It, it was kind of a weird scene. Like, everyone brought the food because, like, Aunt Mildred brought the jello salad, you know, that she's been bringing. It was probably the same one from last year, you know. And, like, everyone brings in all the food, and everyone puts it on the table. And then because it just is customary, like, all right, say grace, you know. And everyone, you know, and you look up, and half the people are, like, smiling and laughing and stuff, right? And everyone just goes through the motions, you're there, but you're not really meeting together. And I think it's probable for this church that they've neglected meeting together and that it just has become tradition. It's just culture. So they're together. They're going through the motions. This really isn't significant. This is just what we do. We're Jews. We do family stuff. We get together. We do bar mitzvahs. This is awesome, right? Now, the problem is, is that is not the command. 
Do not neglect meeting together. Now, I've asked a question, and we're going to look at four of these as well. Why would we, in our context, stop meeting together? I think there's four of those. Let's start with number one. We think, not meeting together, that not only can we do it on our own, but we actually want to do it on our own. Um, I know many of you guys enjoy team sports. The reality is many of you guys enjoyed and loved track and field. Why? Because there was no one else to blame it on. There was no one else to share the victory with. Like it was mano y mano. It was you. You either won the 400 or you lost. That's why many of you in school, you you hate group projects. Because then you're relying on Sleepy McGee over here, right, who hasn't done his homework all year. You would rather do it on your own, take the credit for yourself, and and bank on yourself. And I feel like many people in the church, this is their attitude, right? Not only do I want to do it on my own, but I can. And so, you know what? I'm just going to isolate myself. I'll have church in my basement, all by myself, in my my computer monitor. I'll pull up the latest Driscoll sermon. It'll it'll be rocking. Hillsong United, I'll just throw in that DVD. You know, the joy box is in the back. I'll give my tithes and offerings, and then it'll be great. The problem is it goes against Scripture. Don't neglect meeting together. The church is the church for a reason. And if you ever hear people say something to the effect of, I'll just do church on my own, my friends, it's one of the quickest ways to, to, to show and see that they're misguided in their walk with Christ. We need each other. And that's the blessing. Number two, why do we neglect? We have been wronged or sinned against. This is the majority of folks who... Uh, who have spent some time in the church, at some point, someone wronged them, someone sinned against them, someone said something about their mother, so, you know, something happened in the church. And I know many of you, you've got a lot of church baggage. And so because of that, maybe for a season in your life, guess what you did? You pulled back. You said, well, I'm just, I'm just done with this church thing, because if those church people are like that. But what we learn about in the last, uh, in the last section If someone has wronged you or sinned against you, then it's time to deal with it. It's time to face and confront in love. But instead, we just bail. I'll just neglect, don't need to meet together. They wronged me again. Next slide. We don't think that those, in quotation marks, people have anything to offer us. We stop going because we see that those people can't meet our needs. And because we were coming, because we really wanted for our needs to be met in the first place, and we realized that they really can't suffice, then guess what? We're done. Lastly, and most significantly, we neglect a meeting together because we don't want to be held accountable. It's one of the greatest blessings of the church. Accountability and love. One of our greatest opportunities to walk arm in arm across that field together is we see each other's hearts and we're able to hold accountable. And so because of that, we have a great chance in accountability itself to stir one another up in love and good works. But instead, people get fearful. They don't want to be held accountable. They want their actions to be what they are. And so they bail. My friends, the church, one of the greatest blessings we have is accountability. That people would actually care enough that you're struggling. And you guys know the Matthias story. That's why we hate gossip here so much. Because we want people to be vulnerable with their sin, be held accountable, not coddled, and then pushed to pursue Christ. 
arm in arm with the church, not by yourself. You see what I'm saying? But many of you even find yourself in that, that piece of your heart. I don't want to go to small group. Like, I'd rather, I can just sit in my deal. I don't want to see, I don't want, I'll just come on Wednesday. That'll be great. No one will hold me accountable. We need to meet together. We can't neglect it. Because when we meet together, the blessing of the church and the unity of the body of Christ is seen in its beauty. And part of that beauty is in our struggles and watching the grace of Christ cover all of it. Right? Go back to verse 25 for me. Not neglecting to meet together, we can't neglect, as is the habit of some, but what's the word? What's the E word there? But encouraging one another. Now, I've been thinking about this word encouragement a lot, and I, I really believe we can sum up encouragement with this, uh, with this last slide. I really think this is encouragement. Just plain and simple joy. When you get around joyful people, it's not all the time in words, because encouragement can come in various forms. It's just when you get around joyful people in our day, in our culture, isn't it encouraging? The problem is we take that to two extremes. The one extreme is the fakers, like the tattoo smile, right? Like those people who every time you look at them, they're just smiling. You know, someone has just died and they're smiling, right? They lost their job, they're, smile, they're smiling all the time. And you start thinking to yourself, that can't be real, right? Like there's no way you're just, hey, everything's great all the time, you know? And, and they, you know, those, those shiny brights, it, it like starts to bother you. You're like, just frown one time for the love, you know? Please show me some other emotion, you know? So that's one side. And that side's not encouraging. That side ultimately is condemning. Are we really supposed to like, is that how we're supposed to express our joy all the time? No. Our joy is expressed in trusting that God is sovereign. And that's how joy comes out every single day. No matter what happens, I experience joy because of who Christ is. The other extreme is just complete negativity and pessimism. You know one or 18 of those people, right? Where like the glass is always, not half empty, it's just always empty. You know, it's like, seriously, how are you even, I, I wonder sometimes how so many Christians are so negative about life. I'm just like, how did you get this perspective where everything you see is just constantly slanted toward negative? It's one thing to be a realist, right? And that's what realists love to argue, like I'm either a realist or, right? There's one thing to be a realist, and I appreciate the realist. It's a whole other thing to be a pessimist, constantly negative. Those are, those are the extremes. But the middle ground, the best place to be is an encourager. And how do you encourage? You celebrate the sovereignty of God in everything that happens. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials. Be joyful always, First Thessalonians said. I'm just joyful. doesn't mean I'm smiling. But there's something in me that's constantly saying God is enough. I trust in him. He will sustain. I'll put up uh, verse 25 one last time here for me. We're to not neglect meeting together as the habit of some, but we're to encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's time to go and move now, church. Your life isn't stirring one another now. It's time to go now. The day of his return is coming nearer and nearer. 
And the blessing of the church is seen now in us stirring one another. Not sitting back in selfishness, but saying, no, like, my faith is crucial, not just for me, but for those who are in the body of Christ. Let's stand together, guys. There's a reason why we come together. And it's not to sing some songs. And it's not just to hear the word. We come together to worship God and be taught the word of God. But we do that and do it together. So that by coming together, we're constantly reminded of our interconnectedness. Of the fact that we are the body of Christ. We're the church. And so I don't know how you entered in this room. You look at those four things that Jesus was doing. But what I'm telling you right now is it's time, my brother and sister, to stir up one another in love and good works. Pursue Christ that others in this room and others in the church who don't look like you and don't talk like you can look at your life and say yes. Like maybe I could love the unlovable. Uh, maybe how they seek compassion. Maybe that's something that can happen in me. M maybe the way. And then ultimately what the church keeps doing is saying it's Christ. It's Christ in me. That's what's happening. So at the end of this beautiful exhortation in Hebrews. He's telling a bunch of Jews to celebrate togetherness. And we will celebrate our unity in our ability to walk across that field, arm in arm, heart in heart, pursuing Jesus together. God, please, empower us, strengthen us, use our lives to stir one another up. Give us a focus, a depth of understanding of who you are. That we would not rest in each other, but that we would, we would celebrate what you've done in us. And so God, tonight, help us see the need for the church now more than ever, God.